Welcome to Howlcast. I hate long intros to podcasts, so I'm going to try and make this short. Did you know you can get a Go Hunt Explorer subscription or an Insider subscription at Howl for Wildlife? Now, why would you do that? Well, Go Hunt's donating about 50% back to Howl for Wildlife. They give you a special discount code to use at Go Hunt, and you get all the benefits of a Howl. For wildlife membership which is basically a bunch of discounts and stuff with other companies you can also do the same thing with a pope and young membership you get your howl membership with that american bear foundation get your howl membership with that or you can get the regular howl membership that's 30 bucks a year with pope and young american bear foundation or howl onyx is giving you first of all 30-day free trial to Onyx Elite. That's where you get maps for all 50 states. If you don't like it after the 30 days, you can switch to premium. You'll get a code for that. That's totally free. That's one state. Additionally, if you like the Elite trial, they're giving you 20% off of that subscription. On top of all of that, you get a free... 30-day trial to Mountain Tough. I also really want to thank Kafaru International for their continued support of Hall for Wildlife. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, so on this podcast, I got Mark Hall of Blood Origins Canada and also the Hunter Conservationist podcast. We start this conversation off. I just started, we just started talking. I'm like, I got to push record. But we're basically talking about Lionheart, which is a, I think, a 38-minute film that Blood Origins did about houndsmen. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So that's where that conversation starts when this, when this podcast starts. That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. It's pretty easy to figure out. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Thank you very much. Strikes me about it is um, I've seen some of the like after the show interviews with people that were there. And one that really struck me was, <clears throat> was a hunter that was just like, wow, like this was a world I knew nothing about as a hunter. And um, I firmly, firmly believe that. And I've advocated this before within the hunting community because there are people that don't like hunting with hounds that are actual hunters. And I'm like, why don't you connect with somebody in your community and just say, I, I need to experience this. I want to see what you do and, and see it firsthand and, and not just take what I'm hearing elsewhere um, to formulate an opinion. And so Lionheart is an amazing film to take you into the heart of people and how much they love their dogs. And that's what it's all about. And when I saw that resonating with hunters going, wow, I had no idea. I'm like, there we go. And we take for granted, like how much conversation and education that we have to have within the hunting community itself. Like we, we always put a lot of stuff out there, hoping that the rest of the world is consuming what we're producing. 
Uh, we get a lot of like thumbs up and, you know, attaboys and stuff from our hunting community, which is great. But when it comes to those tough issues where, where our own folks don't really understand, uh, but they need to, so that they can support it based on the principles of hunting. I just think that that's, uh, that's an amazing film and, uh, we're working on getting it on tour up in Canada as well. So I, I got a chance to see it. Uh, Robbie sent me the, the link. Yep. And, uh, it's just beautiful. And I love the storytelling. I love the faces. I love the, uh, just the connection and the passion mm, yep. have with their dogs. Most people do not understand it. And it's, it, I was just having this conversation today. It's kind of just like anything. Um, for everybody, it's different, I believe. But we were talking about Africa. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, I have no desire to kill an elephant or a giraffe or whatever, but I completely support um, hunting those species. And and I'm the same way. I I have no desire. But it could possibly change if I was in Africa and I saw elephants in their natural environment and depending on the, the sequence and just how things went down. Cause it, it's for me, the reason I started bear hunting was um, I had an intense confrontation with a bear and it was the craziest. I don't know how long it was. It, Maybe it was five minutes, maybe it was 10 minutes, but it felt like an eternity because it kept charging me. And, uh, I just had my bow. I was deer hunting and I just, I snuck up on a bear on accident. I thought I was sneaking up on a deer. Well, there was a deer, but <laughs> there was also a bear I didn't know about. And it had it's brown it had fur, like, yeah. yeah, it had cubs. And oh. that evening I was sleeping in my tent a long ways away from where this took place and my i couldn't help it my my my, my senses were just I've, I've never been like this before um every little thing i heard I, I didn't sleep that night i couldn't like i just it was so frightening it was it but it was also just it was also such a moment of more than a moment but it was uh it was just the realest thing and then for some reason and it's not, it had nothing to do with like vengeance or anything like that. I'm like, I want to know more about black bears and I want to start hunting them. And kind of the same thing happened with coyotes too. They used to just think, Hey, you know, they kind of look a lot like my, like, like my dogs. Uh, but I have a different view on that now, you know, yep. and yep. I was just elk hunting and I snuck up in archery range of a, of a mountain goat. And I don't know if I'll ever be into that because it just costs so much money, you know, but it's piqued my interest. I'm like, oh, that was cool. I want to know more about that. And I, I, you know, I, I feel like I learn about animals by hunting them. Right. That's, that's pretty common, I would say. But uh, I, I agree. And it's the same, the same thing for me. You know, it's uh, when people say, what's your, why, why do you hunt? It's like, yeah, I like to have, you know, the meat, um, that's great. But if you really cut to the chase, what it is for me is, um, hunting is my way to understand 
these animals so in depth how they live and what they need to live so that I can be a better conservationist at the table to stand up for wildlife the way my grandfather used to. Um, he's in my blood. Uh, and, and he did a lot for, uh, for wildlife during his life. And, and when I was a kid, I was basically like the first kid in the hall family where people are like, Oh, he's not going to be a hunter. <laughs> I just, you know, like my love for wildlife, but you know, I, I did. And, you know, I've come to realize that in order to be a predator, which that's what we are as a hunter, we're no different than a mountain lion or whatever. We are a predator. And in order for that to be successful, the one out of 10 attempts that we make, we have to understand that prey almost better than itself. Uh, we almost have to be able to understand the animal's intuition in order to anticipate what an animal's going to do in a certain situation and where it might be under certain situations to be there even before it knows that it's going to be there um, to eat just like a mountain lion would. Right. And for me, that's the drive. Uh, and it's the lifelong drive of being out there till the very end is I am just absorbing and learning about these animals and, and, and every, moment that I can in my life, I'm telling people about these animals and what they do and what they need and why they're doing what they're doing. And, and that's why I got into trapping. Like I, my dad, and my grandfather had trap lines as a kid. They sold them off before I, you know, and I got back into it a few years ago. Cause for a big part of it, I was like, you know, there's this whole group of wildlife out there that I don't hunt, but I need to understand what makes them tick? What does a weasel need? Like, what does a weasel need for habitat? Where's he going to live? What, what does it do day to day in order to know that in-depthly so I could stand up for the preservation or conservation of weasel habitat uh, and their prey? Like, how are you going to dial in that species more than trying to figure out how to catch them? Because if you put your trap box in the wrong place, it's empty every single time you check it. And it's not until you get those things dialed in um, that you truly, truly understand them. One of the big lessons I had last year trapping Martin was there's a clear cut. There's a riparian area with lots of big old cottonwood and old growth spruce and down logs and grouse and hares and, 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 um, and squirrels just like filled this little riparian area, but clear cut on each side. And then the timber higher up on, on the mountain slopes where they didn't get to logging. And I'm like, oh, this corridor along this river, like the Martin are just going to pour in there and work up and down it and hunt all of these small game animals that were there. And like, there's nothing. I, th I think I got one Martin farther down um, where there wasn't quite so much logging. And, you know, maybe this is just my read on it, but one of the things I realized, what they think is an okay clear-cut opening size and Martin are still going to cross that and get in and, and utilize the habitat of a riparian reserve zone. I'm like, nope to a Martin that's got to cross 300 yards of a clear cut to reach that area to hunt grouse and hares. He's taking his life into his hands because he's going to get picked off by an owl out in that opening. And that 300 yards 
you know, it would be nothing if somebody wanted to make a shot at a deer on the top side of the cut block or whatever was a barrier to Martin moving on the landscape. And I was just like, wow, like what an epiphany. And I don't think I would have learned that if I wasn't out there trying to catch one. And I know damn well, there's nobody in the anti-trapping fur bearer world or whatever is out there in the wintertime sledding into these back basins, crawling around on their hands and knees in the willow going, I really need to understand what a Martin does every day and what he does when the weather changes and so on and so on. And, and I just feel a responsibility to use what I gained from hunting and trapping to turn around and advocate for these species. It's those details that are hard to get across. Isn't it? Uh, to, to, to hunters and non-hunters. I mean, going back to, going back to using hounds, my dogs are going ballistic right now because my wife just came home. But going back to using hounds, if you don't understand <clears throat> those miles and following those dogs and you know just all those all the details that you learn over time and that have been passed down you're just not going to understand it and that's one thing i really appreciate one of the things that i really appreciate about lionheart is i think it it shows that i understood that you know and i and i know you know if i go on hunts like that i'll have even a, a greater appreciation same thing with trapping trapping is so that's patience and skill and years and years and years of and that and new and nuance you know like uh you know quarter of an inch too high or too low with the bottom of your snare and the squirrel just mows over top of it like it was a branch in his way right so and um and that yeah that's yeah pretty wild. you know and i i got a lab now uh an english lab yeah he's just about a year and a bit and last year taking him out like it's for a duck retriever and last year he was just like taking a little kid out it's all fun. And then it's like, I got to sit in the blind and be quiet. And it's like, after five minutes, like, this is boring. <laughs> you know, I was eating the grass and then he'd like fall asleep and I'm shooting at ducks and he doesn't even wake up. And, uh, I was like, ah, oh, geez, man, I, maybe I don't know what I'm doing training a duck dog. Cause I didn't grow up with it with dogs. And this year, oh man, he's just like, just turned it on. In. And he is a hunter and he is a goer and he's like in the water and just like, I've been out grouse hunting because the duck hunting is really, really slow where I live right now. Like the weather's just not moving them down from the north. So I've been out duck, duck hunting or grouse hunting and, you know, we're up in the high country and mule deer ish, like take country in the subalpine looking for blue grouse and he's just hunting. You know, and he's like, he's got his nose to the ground and it's like, okay, there's birds here. He's on it. He's on it. He's working also up. They go into a tree. Right. And, and I'm absolutely loving hunting with him. I took him bow hunting elk. Um, I had him spring bear hunting. And since the bow season, all I've done is hunted birds with him. And all I've got so far this year is birds. And I'm like, I'm in love with hunting with this dog. And I'm almost like, you know, the thought of leaving him at home and going deer hunting later in the year, I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. 
feel like you're leaving. I might just take them on a leash. And, and if we get a deer together, great. It's a bonus. If the deer sees the dog and like, and it blows my cover, it's like, well, whatever. But it's like, I'm hunting with him. And it, that's, that's really perfect. been an epiphany for me this year. And that's just a lab. Uh, for these folks with the hound dogs and 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 the spirit and the heart that Lionheart the film shows, I'm like I get it. It's just like I could not leave him at home. So I'm like, I don't know what the future holds for me for hunting now. So I'm very excited for the public to see it. I should introduce you. Who are we talking to? We're talking to Mark Hall of the Hunter Conservationist and newly established. Blood Origins Canada, correct? You bet. You bet. Who are you, Mark? What's happening? That is me. Yep. Host of the Hunter Conservationist podcast, the Around Canada podcast, and director of the Blood Origins Canada Foundation, actually a nonprofit society in Canada with oh. the same mission as Blood Origins to convey the true consequences of hunting in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of it to convey up there, isn't there? There's a lot going on. It it uh, ebbs and flows. It's uh, different. It's very different than the United States. There's some similarities in things, uh, but just our wildlife management structure, our politics and everything are slightly different. So the way the issues manifest themselves are a little bit different. The cultures are even different, you know, like it's, it's, we're so close um, you know, as neighbors, largest border and, you know, in the world between our two countries, but very different North and South. And, you know, when you think about somebody that's born and raised in Southern Texas, that's a hunter versus somebody that's born and raised in the Arctic of Canada, you know, it's like both hunters, but world worlds apart. So I'm looking forward to bringing more of that to, to the world. Speaking of that, um, the difference you had, Tom, what's his last name? Seaward? Seaward. Seaward. Yep. I absolutely loved that podcast. Um, oh man. So many people to get on with us as well. Um, but that was just a new, I knew it was out there. I just hadn't heard it before. That, that, that narrative, what he had to say. That narrative. Yeah. That was an important one. I really, he was, that guy's on fire. I mean. Oh, unreal. He, he can talk, huh? <laughs> he he sure can. Uh, you know, usually when I have a podcast guest on, like we kind of like, yeah, this is kind of what we're thinking for like topics. And some people like to kind of like have me frame out the questions. I don't do like, I don't really do like the question and answer thing, like a, like a, TV interview, whatever those, that's kind of a little bit too contrived, but I say like, here's some themes, here's some general areas I want to explore with you, but this is also your show. So like bring your ideas to the table as well. And, and Tom did that. He pitched, you know, these are some things I would like to talk about on your podcast. And then I added a few things, you know, would like to get him to open up about. And usually the podcast, it's kind of like, yeah, you get the conversation going on one of the themes or topics and then your guest kind of like unfolds it for everybody. And then you sort of segue into the next one and you kind of roll through the show like that. So with Tom, I kind of like, okay, Tom, like, here's the things you said you wanted to talk about. Here's some things that I was thinking. 
um, kind of went over each one and you know, like, what do you think? And he goes like, that's good. So we kicked off the show and then kind of moved the, moved the mic over to him. And it was just like, he just started going through that whole entire list without me having to prompt him. Yeah. And I was like, just the ability for somebody to come on an interview, go, here's the six things that I'm being asked to talk about. And then just like, yeah, go Fire. like a Ted talk did not have to like stop and say, so what's the next question kind of thing. And I was like, wow. I mean, he's a professional podcaster as well, but uh, boy, he, mm. he lit the switchboard up for us. Um, he resonated with so many people because he was like, it's like he spoke the common language of like the hunter on the ground. Right. And just calling stuff the way it is. He had the conversation on the podcast that most of us have offline, mm. like just the rawness to the point calling things and people <laughs> like speaking your mind. Right. Well, that's what I was hoping. So you you did get a lot of positive feedback on that. Mostly a little bit of negative stuff, but that's yeah. okay too. Yeah. No, sure. That's interesting. Hmm. Well, so it, it was, it was very, fun. it was, I did not expect this actually. Like I talked to Tom a couple of years ago and I knew, I, I sort of knew what it was going to be like, but not to the extent and not to have the impact that he had on both our listeners and some of the stuff that transpired afterwards. So I've had the offices of federal MPs contacting me, asking how to get a hold of them. Um, like just some really, some really big, big stuff. Um, you know, people in big places were listening to that and, and writing in to me. And I was like, I, you know, really felt like we're having a big impact on the yeah. world uh, on the way people are thinking about grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia. And it's like, that's our job. That's the job of this podcast. Right. And, and so it felt, felt good. I didn't expect it was going to happen that way and made an impact. And, and made an impact and it's great. I, I'm like, I, every single guest is not going to be a Tom Seawood. So I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, trying to learn, you know, how to, you know, find somebody like that and get them on the show and just turn them loose sure. without, you know, sort of getting people on where you're like, okay, that person spoke their mind, but they were just like a total you know, wing nut out there, the things that they were saying, I don't want the podcast to be like, become like the Jerry Springer show or something like that, <laughs> just all shock and awe. But, but it's really made me think, and it's kind of really made me realize what Joe Rogan dials into, um, with his guests, right? Cause he's like guest after guest after guest is, is like that. The topics are always different, but, uh, I don't know how he stays on top of it to keep it, to keep it fresh and interesting. He does oh, man. a good job. I, I think because like, like the universe is his, is his slate, right? Rogan's slate. So yeah. he's like got an astrophysicist on and then the mushroom guy and then like a MMM fighter. And then this person that's like 
flew a plane across the ocean or, you know, like whatever, mm-hmm. where, where we've pigeonholed ourselves into this, this smaller category of but he asks just hunting. Question, like he asks the questions to get the interesting stuff out of them. Oh, totally. He does such a good job at that. That's, it's amazing. He's, even where he's to, a master to listen question. to as a podcaster yeah. to go, what is he doing with his guests? I don't care what the topic is. What is he doing to, to, to get that out? Listening, but he's doing his homework before, before. Oh, he, absolutely. It's just, it's nuts. All the things he has going on, how he can, how he can do that and retain all that. Well, we didn't even know whose podcast we were going to, I, I thought I was going to be on your <laughs> podcast and you thought you were, were going to be on mine. We're messaging oh, before the show. Yeah. Did you send me a link yet? Link yet? And it was like, yeah. well, what do you mean? I thought we were, I was going on your show. Did you send me a link? So, oh, oh, I, and I messaged a good thing our listener our followers are not listening to our disorganization of whose podcast we're going on. Well, we started off with a few weeks ago. Um, there's this action, the uh, Cascade Grizzly, the National Park Service wanting to bring in mm-hmm, grizzly mm-hmm. bear into uh, into the Cascade, into Washington. And you had reached out to me um, about a few concerns, and I had my concerns. Um, so basically, just to just to lay it out, I'm going to read it off of our action here, just real quick. Um, the, uh, the National Park Service and uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is seeking public input on a draft environmental impact statement that evaluates options for restoring grizzly bear to the North Cascades ecosystem in Washington, where the animals once roamed. So the public is invited to you know comment on the proposed rule. Um, there's all, the, they're proposing a 10-J, but then also should we bring them in at all? And my position on it was, nope, you should not do that. And my reasoning, I think, is fairly simple. Um, I guess it's simple. So Washington State, in my belief, with their current commission, has such a hard time managing its own wildlife populations and especially its predator populations and especially the direction they're headed with managing its predators. Um, Now, if grizzly bears come in, it's not necessarily a WDFW situation or management issue because it would be federal. However, to introduce another apex predator, such as a grizzly bear, into um, that ecosystem, I just feel like is is the wrong answer. Um, additionally, on the federal side, I'll look at Montana, where their recovery numbers are exponentially they're exponentially over the recovery numbers, and the grizzly bears still are not delisted. There's a lot of complications there with why, but. Number one, there's already grizzly in Washington, and I have no issue with grizzly bears. I have no issue with grizzly bears living where they live. I do sometimes have issues with humans bringing in grizzly bear because I simply don't trust the process. And that's 
that's really my opinion on it. That's the, if I trusted the process, I don't know if I'd have a problem with it, but I certainly don't. So that's where I was coming from. And I also worked with the American Bear Foundation on that. And it's basically where they're coming from. And, uh, but you had some interesting things to say about the grizzly bears specific to the Cascades, I believe. Yeah. So British Columbia has <clears throat> somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 grizzly bear population management units. So they're the geographic areas that the scientists have drawn lines around to say that these are distinct grizzly bear populations. Um, you know, the home ranges of various bears, their um, populations are independent of, you know, one another, <clears throat> basic wildlife management units, but they're specific for grizzly bears. So there's one called the North Cascade Grizzly Bear Population Management Unit. Its uh, southern border is the border with Washington State. That grizzly bear population management unit. So in British Columbia, we basically got grizzly bears coming out the wazoo uh, everywhere in the province, but about three of the grizzly bear population management units are, are in dire, dire straits of their, they're in dire straits of the remaining bears that are there are going to blink out. Um, <clears throat> the North Cascade Grizzly Bear Population Management Unit is one of them. It's one of the three most threatened grizzly bear populations in British Columbia. Um, that unit in the 2018 uh, inventory that was done, uh, they estimated six bears left mm. in that management unit. Why, has, why is that? Why are they, why are they in dire straits? What's the, you know, so, so their numbers are low, like total numbers, like six bears. Uh, they have a very low density uh, in that management unit, one per 1,000, one grizzly bear per thousand square kilometers. So on average, there's one grizzly bear every 25,000 acres in that management unit. The bears, because of, um, terrain this is coastal coastal mountains the cascades terrain its proximity to 5 million people just east of the you know the vancouver area highways terrain these sorts of things that grizzly bear population is one of the most isolated grizzly bear populations in the province meaning that the scientists are seeing virtually no immigration or emigration out of that population unit so they become genetically bottlenecked they're not moving back and forth into adjacent populations to interchange genetics so they're becoming genetically bo mod um, bottlenecked which means they're on their way out so habitat is it's good grizzly bear habitat I would say it's good grizzly bear habitat just about everywhere other than say Vancouver is good grizzly bear habitat in BC. Even some of our communities uh, are good grizzly bear habitat. So uh, I, as far as I know, it's not a, it's not a habitat uh, issue. One of the biggest issues that the scientists have found in British Columbia that 
that impacts grizzly bear populations are roads. So there's a strong correlation between the density of roads on the landscape and the mortality of grizzly bears, either being hit or when there is a hunting season there, that's how hunters get access to bears. The more roads, the more quickly they're finding bears, you know, that, that whole thing. I think everybody understands the relationship between lots of roads on the landscape and how hunters will use them and drive them to find, to find animals. So there's lots of logging, you know, on the coast, lots of roads. So high road density, even just traffic on roads can cause grizzly bears to avoid roads and deselect for really good habitat, like good food, and and shift into being farther away from roads and living in sub suboptimal, like calorie landscapes, which then in turn affects um, fitness, you know, uh, female ability to breed, cub survival, yada yada. It's a phenomenon known as as habitat compression. So it's a um, the the roads themselves and the traffic on it are compressing animals into areas, and they're not really utilizing all of the habitats available because they're just trying to stay away from roads. So BC's got a lot of roads because of because of logging. So I mean, I don't know like the exact situation around habitat roads and the logging and stuff in that area, but I just it you know it is a lot of logging, a lot, a lot of logging, you know, in the coastal areas, a lot more people, a lot more road use, a lot more backcountry use and stuff. And, and then the terrain, like, I mean, there's just certain features in coastal British Columbia where they've done genetic studies on both indigenous people and grizzly bears and said like, Hey, the, the landscape is actually confined where people moved and where grizzly bears moved and they both are kind of like stuck to the same areas just because of the, because of the coastal mountains. So, you know, a number of things like that have driven that population down. And the big thing is, is they're just not able to intermix and, and get genetics mixed up or, you know, if a bear immigrates into the area, it might, you know, get killed quickly uh, there are areas of the province where, th where that's happening so you know there, one there of the currently grizzly bear hunting in is there currently grizzly bear hunting in british columbia at all no, no. none okay, okay. No. So, only so only only indigenous hunters are allowed to hunt them right okay so yeah. when you're saying to be quickly killed you're you mean like a, a car bear it could or, uh Studies that I've seen, scientists, grizzly bear scientists that I know in the southern portion of British Columbia, where most of our road network, highway networks are, and where most of our population is, and most of our rail networks and everything, that the leading cause of grizzly bear mortality in the southern part of the province is human caused. And without hunting anymore, it's cars and trains. And one of the scientists told me that if, uh, out of the last 40 years, of grizzly bear data that they have from a number of different studies in Southern BC. So like along the Washington, Idaho, Montana border, like, you know, uh, that general area, not a single grizzly bear in the last 40 years that was part of a research project that had a radio collar on it, um, died of natural causes. Every single bear that had a grizzly that had a collar on it that ended up dying, died because of humans. 
Interesting. So either so, it was shot in hunting season or it was run over. So if we brought in Grizzly, I can't remember what the proposal was, how many to bring in over a certain amount of years. But anyway, uh, if, if, if we brought in Grizzly, they might just die, <laughs> right? As a it, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know the situation of the Cascade range south of the border. Uh, probably know it less than, than what I do in the North Cascades in British Columbia. But I mean, if you're putting them into a landscape where, where everything is working against them and they're swimming upstream, then, you know, you take 10 grizzly bears at 50,000 bucks a piece to get them from whatever population to there. And their mortality is 90% in their first year of life. Like it's, you know, it's like, you got to take care of that other stuff. I think, you know, roads and access and other sources of mortality and all these kinds of things before you move anything into a landscape. Otherwise you're just throwing stuff into a landscape that gets killed. It's like, remember that project over in where they moved all those cheetahs to India no. early in January. <laughs> it was like they all, like every, every other week in the news, it was like, Oh, there's another one got killed. Another one got hit by a car. Another one, you know, like whatever. And, I it have, was a it was a rewilding project. Yeah, I've heard those concerns with the relocation of wolves. How many died just in the transport process? And this was in a conversation with the the wolves that are now going to come from Oregon. Ten wolves are coming from Oregon to go to Colorado for their reintroduction yeah. that they have there. Um, the, you know, the other thing, and I don't, I don't fear monger on this. I don't use a grizzly bear attack story to say this is why we shouldn't have grizzly bears grizzly bears are where they are and if you're in grizzly bear country you just need to be prepared for that um however it happens yeah it is um something the public would really need to be a bit more aware of and in montana there's a large population of grizzly bear and we're constantly reading seems lately about encounters with grizzly bear or deaths or near death um the population is much higher in washington state than it is in montana i think montana they have a million people total something like that i don't know it's not a lot maybe that's wyoming but it's not a lot the population of humans is a lot greater in 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 washington and um i wonder how that would play out as well and i wonder how people feel about that hey i'm gonna go hiking in the cascades but now we have to worry about grizzly now i think there's already possibly a few there i don't know about the cascades if there no there is there are there are a few grizzly there and they do have grizzly bear identification signs and i do believe in the cascade it says be aware of grizzly bears they can be here um but bringing in more (laughs) might be a bit more of a surprise for people but again that's not my that's not my issue it's really not. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, and country, it's grizzly bear country, and uh, that's just the way it is. I that that's my personal feelings on that. I just, you know, back to my mistrust of 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 Washington, where they're already getting rid of. They got rid of spring bear hunting. Some of the commissioners want to reduce overall black bear hunting, overall cougar hunting. Um, I don't like the direction that's going. 
and I also don't like how long, you know, we come up with recovery numbers and all that and let's do this and then nothing happens. They don't get delisted. Management is just a talking point that doesn't seem to get played out. Um, that's my issue. Yeah. And see, my perspective on it is just a little bit farther into the future. And I'm looking at this for the generations in the future when I'm not here anymore. And with the hopes that someday management regimes change, governments change. I hear what you're saying. I live in British Columbia. We have a government in power that banned the grizzly bear hunt based on public emotion. Mm -hmm. And they're still in power and we still don't have like a hunt back. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to advocate for grizzly bear science, understanding them, protecting habitat, um, doing whatever conservations needed to keep grizzly bears on the landscape for the scent you know, for, for part of it is they're just part of the diversity of this landscape. Like they should be there. Um, no different than, you know, badgers where I live, they're federally protected, but you know, I just, it's great that they're here. You know, I, you know, I, you know, I like that, that part of it as well, but also that if some point in the future, British Columbians and whatever government they elect, and whatever science and knowledge they have and whatever the ethics of society is at that time, say we're okay with hunting grizzly bears. The North Cascade, you know, unit um, was almost extirpated 50 years ago. Now we got 150 grizzly bears in there with a healthy, stable population. Scientists have said they can take, you know, eight males a year out of that unit or whatever. They're going to make the decision and maybe my grandkids are going to hunt a grizzly bear in the North case cascade area. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I look at it with that level of optimism and, and, and standing up for like the conservation of the species, knowing that all of that stuff can change in the future. But the one thing that will prevent future generations from having the opportunity to hunt grizzly bears in Washington state or in the North cascade grizzly bear management unit is the fact of whether there's bears there even at all. Mm -hmm. And so myself, I would sacrifice and advocate and do whatever for there to be healthy animals on the landscape, even if I never live long enough to ever see the returns, but at least knowing that I can look down and say, I gave these generations like the opportunity to make that decision. Mm -hmm rather than making a decision for them. And they're going, damn, it should be nice to hunt grizzly bears in the North Cascades. Too bad yeah. that generation just let them blink out, right? So that, that's that's a little bit where I was coming from, where I thought yeah. this would make a really co cool conversation. And in my way of thinking of the grizzly bear population of the North Cascades is ignorant of the boundary between our two countries. They need both sides. Mm -hmm. They, they're going to move back and forth. And in order for that to be a sustainable grizzly bear population that maybe one day Washington state, you know, somebody 
gets hit in the head by a meteorite and kind of like, oh, let's manage wildlife and and have hunting. I, I I'm hoping for the same thing in British Columbia one day too that we have some changes uh, in the philosophy towards hunting grizzly bears and 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 we get that back as well. But I just want to make sure they're there, man. I just want to make sure that I somebody am, that lives there. I am too. Uh, I, and I can't argue with you. I say this totally from my point of concern. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't even argue it. You know, the, I just, I, I just have those concerns. Um, I wish the grizzly would just come in. You know, I want them to be there. I wish they'd walk in. I would when there's only them. six of them north yeah. of the border, yeah, I, and I and and a couple yeah. months ago they found one somebody killed it tied a rope on its legs drug it down dumped it into the squamish river and then its carcass washed up on shore right i i believe that bear probably was came from the north cascade population management unit so it was like you know there's there's one last right <laughs> they're down to five i would like to know if there's anything that can be done i'd like to know why there's so little bear there what's happening there because then let's bring in 10 grizzly bear and then in 10 years, they're all dead. You know, there's and that makes no sense. Yeah. You know, if you don't have, like, if you don't have all of the, the pieces on the receiving end in place, like people that are like willing to like, is the money there? Do you have a government that's saying like, it's going to take like $8 million a year between scientists and collaring bears and the research and going on and what they're doing and moving bears that get too close to people, everything that's going to take to make life successful for the animals that we didn't give them the choice to plunk them into a new area. It's like we owe those animals that they're going to be plunked down somewhere. They have the greatest success of living and prospering and replacing themselves with their own future generations and not throw them into an area where they're set up to fail. If they're being thrown into an area that they're set up to fail because of whatever, um, management things, money, they're not all, you know, habitat pieces, like whatever, then the timing's probably not right for Washington state, but given how quickly this population could blink out, it would be like, you need to get your shit in order real fast because these bears are, you know, they're not waiting around. Yeah. I do have a lot of concern for that, for the bear, for the bear that are there and and them being there. I, I just don't know the solution with that. I just, ugh. And it's, it's a tough one when you're dealing with carnivores. And predators, because there is a consequence of those animals on the landscape. If those animals choose to take up residence in close proximity to people, generally it's the people that live in rural areas and rural lifestyles that bear the brunt of these carnivores on the landscape that are, that are saying, Hey, we like your farm or we like your town, (laughs) you know, like not far from where I live. There's grizzly bears that live in the towns with people. And, you know, it's great to like sit in Seattle and go like, Hey, isn't that wonderful? That town up in BC has grizzly bears and coexistence or whatever. And, and maybe you don't know what it's like for the people living there going like, God, it's like, 
no, the kids can't be out on the street playing street hockey at dusk in the summertime, or you can't leave the dog on the porch. Like people live in fear in the town, like whatever, you know, they're the ones that got to pay the, the, the brunt of it. And that's a reality in us everywhere in the world. will kill those bears. They'll kill a problem bear. It will happen. Uh, that's a tough one. It is. It is. Um, but some of these Cascades issues are, are vastly tough. different than San Francisco, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, you know, grizzly bears used to live on the, before it was called San Francisco, but go up and down the coast of San Francisco. Yep. Seattle. Uh, no way we yeah, can, bring you know, everything here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different story up there. I get that. I'm making an extreme off the wall point there, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. They're, they're, there's going to be a meeting, I think, in uh, at the end of the month in, in Washington to discuss this. And I don't know. I just hope there's thoughtful conversation. And I, I just have concerns that I think need to be heard. And, and maybe somebody has a solution for it. Maybe there's maybe there's a better way to enhance the the lifespan of the Grizzlies that do exist. What can be done there? I'd like to know more about that. I really would. Um, why aren't they living? Why aren't they dying of natural causes? You know, um, yep. if there's no solution to that, bringing more grizzly bear in, it's just going to be more grizzly bears dead and it'll, it'll be a wasted project. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you move, if you move 10 grizzly bears into the North Cascades in Washington and something happens to a sow and three of her cubs, like happened about an hour from where I live, last late last fall where four grizzly bears got smoked by a train trying to cross the train bridge when the rail when the train came that was loaded with coal and literally i know the scientists that went out there and there's grizzly bears laying all over the riverbank like they were dropped out of an airplane um that's like four bears that you know, so when you think about the numbers, initially the numbers that would be moved into the North Cascades of Washington, you know, you're you're talking pretty small numbers and something like a rail strike of one sow and two or three cubs, it's like. You'd have there's... to bring in a hundred. If that, if, right? Because you're going to lose a certain percentage. You'd have to bring in a hundred to make this population possibly flourish. <laughs> I have no ideas on the numbers. I'm just coming up with you know, if, but if, if those kind of things are happening. I don't know. Um, I mean, if they're lucky, they'd probably start out with like two. Right. I, can't I mean, kind of an interesting story between Canada and Washington and the North Cascades. Trappers in Alberta have been working on a collaborative project with Washington State for quite a number of years capturing fisher in northern alberta because they're they're highly abundant in the boreal forest in northern canada and at basically at their own expense uh, a little bit of you know expenses being covered they've been they've been translocating fishers into the into the cascades of washington state to repopulate down there and you know it's an endangered species uh, you know I, you know, a fisher doesn't like go off and like kill somebody's cow or, or maul you in your tent or whatever. So there's, there's a little different, you know, idea, but I look at it the same way there that 
I would hope that someday wherever I am after I'm gone, somebody goes like, Hey, remember a hundred years ago when you were talking to the president of the Trappers Association in Alberta about their project of moving fishers down, they have a trapping season in Washington state now. And I'd be like, God damn, that's so cool. I can't disagree with you. I mean, I a hundred percent, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about wild pig. pigs posted something today. I'd, I'd heard about them before, but I don't, what's uh, going on with the wild pigs in Canada and so why are they different and what's the problem? We have been okay. following this story for, for years now. Um, Dr. Ryan Brooke of the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon is he, he's, he's like Canada's pig guy. Um, his Twitter handle is chairman of the boar. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> super. We sat in his office at the university and I think he's like episode four or five years ago, we recorded on, on Canada's invasive wild pig, pig issue. So the bottom line is these invasive wild pigs were for the most part escapees from penned operations. The epicenter was around a number of operations in Saskatchewan. Different species were brought in. Um, some were the Eurasian wild boar. Some were all of the different um, um, domestic breeds for um, for food. Um, the different the different you know the big pink pigs that you know that we think of, and they escape pen operations as well, uh, as well as the Eurasian wild boar. There was a big thing like decades ago and in, in, like there was a big, you know, sort of um, recession and a big thing of agriculture to get ag operators to diversify and get into all these exotic species because ostriches were worth a lot and all this kind of thing. And so everybody was switching over and Eurasian wild boar was, was, was brought into the country and then some of them got out. And then these pigs started interbreeding. And so a lot of these wild pigs that are living on the landscape are hybrids between these massive domestic pigs that were, some of them were actually bred to have an extra rib, 13th rib, so that they were bigger and they had more pork ribs, you know, like to, to sell for meat with these Eurasian wild boars to create what what Ryan Brooke calls like the super pig. So it's a hybrid, you know, not even like the true native Eurasian wild boars. Like these are hybrids and they've, they started to proliferate and he started researching them and like going like, Hey government, you need to get your shit together here and wrangle these things up before they get out of control. Um, they breed like crazy. They expand, they can, disappear and hide and he has people in saskatchewan that basically call bs on his research because they said i've lived here my whole life and i've never seen a wild pig and then you know crops are being mowed down and i think it was sometime last year maybe a little bit the year before they had expanded to cover the known occurrences occurrences in canada were two million square kilometers of Canada, hmm. mostly Saskatchewan, Alberta, and they're sprinkling into British Columbia now. 
And What's his name? Ryan Brook? Ryan Brook. Dr. Ryan Brook. Yeah. Trying to find him on here and I can't. Is he on Instagram? Don't think he's on Instagram, but he uh, is on he's on Twitter or X. On Twitter. I, I, I can flip you his contact information. Oh well. But uh I think I, think I yeah, have these a... things are these things are monsters. Like uh, like he basically, yeah. you know, like he went through, you know, everything from the damage they do in croplands to uh, these things destroy riparian habitat. They eat ducks and duck nests and oh yeah duck baby ducks and he's got pictures of these wild pigs running across the field with like white tail fawns in their mouths because they just they're on the ground rooting around and the deer dropping fawns and yeah. like they just eat everything well like, we're, we're loaded with pigs wild pigs in california and there are i love hunting wild pigs i absolutely love them. they taste amazing they're listed it's a big game animal here yeah no, it's an invasive species in California, not in all states. I don't know if any other states considered considers it a, a big game animal. But in California, they are considered a big game animal. Um, it's going to be some small changes that go into effect in July. But it's still basically a big game animal. They're now going to call it an exotic game species. So you still have to buy, still have to have your license and you buy a validation. Now you don't have to have a tag for each pig that you kill you have a validation like you get with a duck duck validation to go duck duck hunting all right gotcha however um wow this is interesting so i was wondering where they came from now there are some operations in california they're high fence operations where they have these eurasian boars and they're imported in just like livestock they get their shots. They get the 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 vet stamp. They get the um, everything, just like bringing in livestock. And uh, I know a lot of them have come from California or from Canada. And there used to be there isn't as many. I'm trying. I'm now I'm kind of putting this together. Um, there used to be a lot of these businesses in Canada where some of these guys would have these pigs shipped in for their high fence operations. Yep. yep. And, um, and the high fence operations, I mean, I won't get too much into this, but they're, they're pretty cool. The one specifically that I'm talking about, it's, it's really tailored. It's a thousand acres of high fence. Okay. And the, you know, he has new hunters come in or, or handicap hunters or, or people that just want to go have fun. Um, but he also has like a hunt school. You go there, you learn the shoot, you kill a pig, you learn to, to process the pig and, and gut it out and all that stuff. It's a pretty cool operation. There's been some changes in California with basically if you have one of those businesses, you're grandfathered in, but no more businesses can start like that. Um, okay. You can't sell it. It's a result of a bill that had to do with wild pigs, but then honestly, it's the truth. Husus got involved in the bill and they wanted to get rid of these high fence operations. And that was their deal for them to basically remain neutral on this wild pig bill that, that had to do with actual wild pigs, not these livestock. It's actually livestock. So they got themselves involved in that. But, um, so I'm guessing Canada 
doesn't have a place to sell to anymore. <laughs> and that, that, that might've happened to some extent. I'm not sure, but I, I bet that's at least where those pigs came from. They either escaped or, or people let them go. That's happened here where pork used to be, they farmers used to make a lot of money off pork and then the prices dropped and they're like, I'm not going to keep feeding them and they let them go. Yeah. They're, they're that suspected too in the prairie provinces of, you know, this people invested in all of these, like I said, these exotic species. And then when the bottom fell out of the prices, they're, they just opened the gate and let them go. I remember about 10 years ago where I lived, somebody got into ostrich farming. And then I remember one of the, talking to a biologist one day and they're saying, they're like, oh, we got to go down to such and such a place because somebody said there's ostriches running around in yeah. the mule deer range. Um, and they're well, like, California. how do you think we should, how do you think we should catch them? And I'm like, well, I know how I'd catch it. You want me to go get it? I think they're pretty good eating, but, uh, yeah, there, there were high fenced operations, uh, here as well. Uh, there was quite a big one in Northern Alberta, North of Edmonton. And yeah, like you said, big, uh, boreal forest. So it was like thick as shit. Like, you know, the, the forest country that they hunted them in. And the operators only allowed bow hunting, didn't want rifle bullets winging, winging around out there. So but it was mostly, um, I think you could actually even rent crossbows from them to go, to go on these hunts. Hmm. Since, since the whole pig issue is blowing up here in Canada, the province of Alberta under its like farm regulations is brought in requirements that all pig operations have to have electric fencing mm. of like a minimum of 4,000 volts. And that was one of the things when we talked with Dr. Brooke, he's like, you know, there's the big operations that are certified and they're registered because they're the big major pig producers for pork. Then there's all these little hobby farms all over the country that aren't registered and they have no idea where they are, how many pigs are being farmed in people's yards, no criteria on fencing, and they don't know whether they're, you know, getting loose, if they're being rounded up. Like, they're they're a definite source of these pigs getting loose as, you know, people that buy two or three of them and then stick up some, you know, three-foot chicken wire and then go out the next day and their 500-pound pig's gone, but... You know, the other thing that's really, <clears throat> that's really interesting <clears throat> and controversial about them up here. So the wild pigs have, are now known to be vectors of CWD. So they're known to be able to ingest the CWD prions. So let's just think of a bait pile yeah. in the prairie provinces, CWD deer coming in, they're eating, they're peeing. The pigs are coming in, they're gobbling up all the stuff, they're ingesting prions, then away they go across the landscape and they can poop those prions out or pee them out or whatever, and the prions are still viable. And and as far as I know, the invasive pig, I think ravens actually, are the only two species that they know are vectors, meaning they can transport and redeposit viable prions. There's the whole issue of the African swine fever, that if somehow it got over and got into the wild pig population, the pork industry has no control over those wild pigs. 
as opposed to if it got into like the pork producers quarantine destroy like you know all this kind of stuff then these wild pigs could be going everywhere across the entire prairie provinces bumping into all of the big pork operations and putting them putting them out of business obviously for hunters the cwd one is is like a big is is the big issue and the bait piles then the now the other really controversial part about it is and dr brooks says this as well he goes it doesn't matter where you go in the world just about every single continent, uh, I think other than like Antarctic, has an invasive wild pig problem. Mm-hmm. In every single one of those continents, hunting has never controlled the invasive wild pig problem and the damage that they do. And in fact, all of the science done worldwide supports the hypothesis that hunting actually makes the invasive pig problem worse explain that so what happens is pigs are in groups they call sounders so you have a female sow and she has like a dozen offspring or maybe there's two mature sows so you got this a sounder of let's just say 30 or 40 pigs and you come across those as a hunter and you go on to shoot one you're going to shoot one or two and this whole herd is going to like freak out Mm -hmm. and the one thing that's crazy about pigs is even as predators if something grabs a piglet and it starts squealing Mm -hmm. the other 39 pigs come rushing in and rip whatever's Mm -hmm. up apart right with their tusks and, and and everything so like grizzly bears and wolves and stuff like are a non-issue to these invasive pigs when they hit hit the Rocky Mountains in, in the West. So these pigs, when they get a bit of hunting pressure on it like that, super smart animals is their behavior patterns start to change and they know they go nocturnal. They move into the thickest areas, usually being river bottoms, riparian areas, which are impenetrable. That's why people don't see them. They don't know that they're even on their landscapes as well. Hunting pressure continues. We'll, we'll take the, the leading edge of these big sounders of pigs and push them out, push them out, push them out. And they, they believe that in the Prairie province, it's one of the, one of the things that's pushing them away from their original epicenters around these pig operations where they escaped is then hunters got when did this got on them and then started to pressure them. And so the pigs started moving out onto the landscape, trying to get away from this pressured area. So hunters are making them nocturnal, harder to kill in, in uh, controlled situations. And they're a, a factor in driving the expansion of them across the landscape. So Dr. Brooke will say, basically one of the best things that a jurisdiction can do is make it illegal to hunt the invasive wild pigs and have a government-sponsored trapping program, which is what the province of Ontario did. Well, but it's controversial been, as hell. <laughs> it has been tried in the States. I would look to, there's some States you can look to where, where they're, I think, uh, oh God, where, where is it? Missouri, maybe. Anyway, 
they're dealing with these issues in the States and there's trapping everywhere. There's helicopter, uh, you know, hunting or whatever you want to call it in Texas, like crazy. Texas can't control its pigs and they kill so many pigs mm. dog hunting using dogs. That's very efficient. Um, you know, it's funny in California, it's become such a market to hunt pigs in California. It's a, it's a different, it's a different environment. It's a different hunt to hunt them in California, especially if you're in the mountains. It's actually, it's an incredibly fun hunt. Um, way different than say Texas, uh, very challenging, but most landowners that I know, if they have pigs on their land, it's not an issue because they're charging a thousand dollars or more at, through an outfitter or a guide or whatever, up to $2,500 for a two day wild pig hunt. You get one pig. So it's completely here in California. It's strange. I mean, it's, it's a market. A lot of the landowners are making more money off of wild pig hunts than they do on, you know, having livestock or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, they're nocturnal depending on where you hunt, you know, you're going to see more no nocturnal activities. Um, in lower pressure areas where the pigs are managed that's that's a real thing um you'll see them out in the day if they feel safe if they feel safe there it's a it's a big big thing here um i mean it's it's a big thing in texas but it's you know it's a couple hundred bucks you can go on a pig hunting trip and you can kill as many pigs as you see generally you know they're not charging a lot for that but in california it's, you know, 2,500 bucks. You stay in a really nice place. Somebody's cooking for you and all that. And you got a 50,000 acre ranch or whatever to go, to go oh. pig hunting on. And people make a thing out of it. They come from out of state to do this. Yep. So that's, it's, it's a, a, it's a tough part. one here too. Like, you know, you, you hear hunters, you know, I, I've always had this sort of saying hunters want something to hunt. And I've seen this echoed in different forums is like, well, the moose populations, you know, down and, and, uh, they got, you know, there's only, uh, the tags have been cut back two thirds of what they were 10 years ago, all this kind of stuff. And hunters are like, Hey, if there's these pigs on the landscape and we can hunt those, cause there isn't moose anymore, then it's like, bring them on, you know? And, and there's, there's that part of it too. Right. As opposed to, you know, thinking about them from you know, an ecosystem perspective and what, you know, could happen to the ecosystem and other species in, you know, the next 50 years with, with all of these on, on the landscape. And, you know, we we're talking earlier about, you know, the concerns about people recreating and, um, you know, with the grizzly bears in Washington state and you see all this stuff over in Europe where these Eurasian boars are like running onto beaches and onto ski hills and attacking people and stuff. And, you know, that's all it's probably going to have to happen here in Canada is, is someone gets, you know, trampled by a wild pig in downtown yeah. Regina or something like that. And all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, we got to do something about these pigs. But as far as I know, British Columbia, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, they're like no tag, no close season. Mm -hmm. They're just, you can shoot them. I'm sure. Yeah. 
and they uh, Alberta them. actually had a bounty on mm. them to encourage people to go out and look for them and shoot it, like actually actively hunt them and shoot them. And, and I think last winter when I was digging into this, nobody had actually claimed a bounty in the province of Alberta because nobody got got a free range. Are people one using dogs? Not that I know of. I mean, that's so. That's the. That's how the, the, the so the culture doesn't exist, right? That's that's the big thing is the the culture doesn't exist. So as soon as you get out of the the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia and Alberta, there's like basically no hound hunting until you get into Quebec and Ontario, where they mostly use them for like small game. Sure. So the prairie provinces where the bulk of all these wild pigs are is not a hound hunting culture, not a dog hunting culture, other than like uh, upland game birds, partridge and pheasants and stuff, ducks yeah. and, and geese or whatever, but you know, not, not the right kind of dog, obviously. So there's the cultural piece. Yeah. Cause that we would did really, a podcast. That would up the success for sure. <laughs> it, it would. Uh, landscape's a little bit different too. And you're talking about like wheat fields and corn fields and canola crops and stuff like pretty hard to go trashing around out you know, in, in those things, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to chase down a group of pigs and get them, get them bait or quartered or whatever, as opposed to like brushy country. Yeah. But we did a podcast last winter with a few fellows um, that had actually hunted. They're from Alberta. They had hunted Eurasian wild boars in the driven hunts in Poland. One of them had a connection to uh professional hunter in the UK that was one of the team members of the uh, um, wild boar fever TV show. So Franz, we had uh, him on the show as well. And what we wanted to do is just sort of like learn about this driven hunt culture that they use in Europe to hunt wild pigs. And I basically posed the question, could that hunting technique be used in Canada to have orchestrated driven hunts on the invasive wild pigs where you have hundreds of beaters and dogs and guys in towers and, you know, and, you know, people that are trained to shoot, you know, these, these running pigs and stuff safely on the, on the landscape and, and make that happen. The general consensus was like you could, it it's, it's possible However, the biggest thing is it's a cultural thing in Europe, the yeah. driven hunts oh, yeah. and people that just get into it because they just want to be a beater or they're a hunt master or they train year round with laser sights and stuff and shooting running pigs. And it's like, if you'd have to foster that culture and that spirit of wanting to hunt that way in order to turn it into something that would be a successful management tool to like, you know, go out on a weekend and knock off 200 pigs in a, uh, you know, in a, in a quarter section or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. That's really, I would love to hunt pigs up there. I, I, I want to hunt pigs everywhere I go. <laughs> they're, they're just, they're fascinating to me. They really, and they're insanely smart creatures. I don't think there's any other, um, yeah, I hear people talk about family units of animals. Pigs, I hunt them all the time. I guide for them. I, you know, I'm, I'm close to them all the. My son just got one, and we were 
oh God, within 50 yards of a sounder for an hour, just watching them. And they talk and little piglets and big boars and four of them on top of each other. I mean, they are insane to watch and listen to. And the noises, they, they whistle, they grunt, they squeal. They make, when you're close, it's amazing the communication that's going on. It's incredible. Um, and just their, their warning grunts. And, you know, I've hunted them so much where I kind of know, I'm like, oh, I know what that sound is, you know, like better make a shot right now because they know something's up or whatever. But they're so much fun to get close to. Mm, and wow. they're, they're fascinating to me. Um, I, you know, they don't have the best eyesight. So if you're not moving, they're not going to pick you out. But if you're moving, they'll pick you out. Obviously their sense of smell is, is insane. Um, but I just love in the coastal mountains here in California. Um, I absolutely love hunting them and eating them. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just glorious, but yeah, I wanted to know about that. I, you know, and I'd heard about it, them. I heard, I heard I mean, these, these killer wild pigs. Yeah. They called them the, 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 the super pigs of Canada. And yeah. like, they were trying to trump this all up and Dr. Yeah. Brooke is like, okay, would you just like, yeah. Like They're sort just of quiet, quiet down you. the rhetoric and, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I mean, the only reason, you know, like he called them super pigs before is because you have these hybrids between the Eurasian wild boars and these giant, um, whatever the different. Pro, like a mangalista, of, um, there's a lot of different, but a lot yeah, of mangalista. Like a Yorkie or something like that too, or whatever. And They call them a yeah. heritage breed. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, and people people were saying, well, you know, once they hit the West, uh, they're going to be no match for, you know, the Rocky mountains crossing the Rocky mountains. And then you see some picture from, you know, like wherever, like France, you know, like 12,000 feet. And there's this Eurasian wild boar in the middle of the wintertime going up an avalanche chute, trying to get over the mountain range going, Nope, not a problem. People oh. are like, well, they'll never survive in Canada's North, like the Northwest territories or the Yukon. And it's like, Eurasian wild boars come from Siberia. So it's like weather's not an issue to them. And then other people say, well, you know, they'll never make it past the grizzly bears of the Rocky Mountains. And Dr. Brooke will say, some of these hybrid pigs are getting upwards of 750 to 900 pounds. The largest grizzly bear that the scientists that I know have ever caught in the Rocky Mountains in Southern BC where I live was massive and he was 550 pounds. Mm -hmm. So like the biggest grizzly bear that he's still alive, that bear that roams the landscape here mm -hmm. is no match for a boar hybrid wild pig. <laughs> so, I mean, that's. They're, they are tough. I, I, I will say on, so a really big pig, if nobody ever actually weighs their pig, everyone always says they're, this is a four thousand pound pig. Oh yeah, that was it. Um, those pigs don't exercise a whole bunch, or they got a whole bunch of food. Um, in the coastal mountains here, because they're getting all kinds of exercise, they're getting a lot, a lot of acorns, even grapes, vineyards, wherever they are. There's they have good habitat. But a really big pig, wild pig, is three hundred pounds, and it's all muscle, very lean. Now, there's been some five 600 pounders those are those are eating somebody's food <laughs> they can't run around up and down the mountains and remain that fat you know what i mean 
Um, yeah. so they will skinny up for sure. hundred percent. Um, you know, a lot of them have seen some out of like South Carolina or whatever, but they still, they still have like the, the ears, you know, going forward, like a farm pig. Um, gotcha. yep. until you can tell it, it hasn't, it hasn't quite adjusted to the wild yet. Their snouts are different. Um, but they, man, it's amazing when they wild, they start changing. They they adapt so fast. It's, it's really something else. It's another reason why they're, they're so fascinating, but last one of the big, yeah, go ahead. One of the big issues here is like they've spread across Canada. Then you have them in like the Southern States. So your Northern States, if you look across the border, Washington, Idaho, Montana, the Dakotas, like all the way across, they don't have wild pigs. So when this all hit the news about Canada's super invasive super pigs or whatever they were calling them, like that was a huge issue all of a sudden blowing up in the States because nobody in those Northern States wants the pigs expanding south out of out of Canada into the northern United States. So, I mean, this has been on the U.S. government's radar screen for decades and decades. And they're actually, I think it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. is the single largest funder of invasive wild pig research in Canada. They're paying for research up here for the scientists to stay on, stay on top of what are they doing? How are they expanding? Where are they? Where are you finding them? Because they have a vested interest of of knowing when it's it's a threat to the United States. We can't even get our own government to spend that amount of money on them up here. They're just like, yeah, we don't have a problem. Dr. It's- Ryan Book literally, literally has elected officials that are trying to discredit him in public, huh. saying that, there the the pig problem is not what he's claiming it is he's just he doesn't know what he's doing and stuff and that's what we're up against where the u.s is like you guys got a pig problem we don't want it so we're gonna help you deal with your problem (laughs) it's shoot on site in in oregon and in idaho i believe and there's some laws against you know letting your pigs go or some pretty serious laws on that um I know there were some in Idaho. I think there's a small group of them in Idaho somewhere, but man, they get killed fast. It might. I wonder if it has something to do with the culture. Same thing with Oregon. Now, obviously, there's a few in Oregon because they're crossing from California to there, but we just have perfect habitat for them in the, on the coast and in central California with all the ag and everything. I mean, they will live anywhere. It's It's amazing. But people... I don't know. People seem to like them here. It's a big business. People love hunting them. Yeah. I don't yep. know. Um, it's, it's a tough one. Like I, you know, like same with the grizzly bear in Washington state reintroduction thing. It's these, these are tough, tough questions. And that's why, you know, I tried to kind of initially sort of move the conversation away from like, Hey, if this whole eradication of the invasive pigs off the landscape is like, that's a lost cause, then where do we move? need to move hunting to, to be a successful tool, at least of keeping them like somewhat corralled in areas where they're causing the most damage, most likely to, to agriculture operations or threatening, um, uh, pig operations. And that's where, 
what I've seen culturally and the effect of, of hunting would be that UK driven hunt model where you might have a hundred people out, but they can, they can work a quarter section in a day and, and put a hundred pigs on the ground. Like to me, just the people traveling around looking for a big white tail buck or a moose or whatever, and go, Oh my God, what the hell's that in the field kind of thing. This is not going to do it, but whether or not Canadians would accept moving into that culture would, um, is the big question. If they wanted to have fun hunting wild pigs because yeah. they're here to stay, then I don't know. I think that's something people should embrace. I want to come hunt them. <laughs> Good uh, luck. What's going on with the uh, grizzly management? Oh, God. Yeah. So today, so, I just, I don't know if this was today, but I just found out today. You sent it to me, but I also saw uh bc wild sheep society i believe uh said that the comet period um was extended to october 31st yep and so what what is that issue and so and i do now so just so just to recap so the government of british columbia has released its draft grizzly bear management plan and it's asking for public input into it that has freaked the anti-hunters out because there's little bits and pieces in there which they see the government is signaling the potential door being open in the future for reinstating the hunt in areas of the province, primarily because there are the vast majority, as I understand it, the vast majority of indigenous communities off the coast of British Columbia want grizzly bear hunting back. They're allowed to hunt them themselves. They want licensed hunters back. So us non-Indigenous hunters buy a grizzly bear tag and come into their territory and hunt them. They want predator management and lots of them want their guide economy back for guiding foreign hunters that are hunting, hunting grizzly bears. So that, that there's a big upswell around that. So the anti-hunting, the anti-bear hunting groups are kind of, they're freaking out over that, that read between the lines in this draft grizzly bear management plan. And so they're telling people bombard the government with don't bring the hunt back. There's articles in the newspaper. They got campaigns writing elected officials and they've managed to push the due date for public comment back three times now from September to early October now till the end of October. I've seen groups, the organized foundations advocating that they want this pushed out until 2024 comment period, because there's, they're saying the plan is so big and so complex. Like it's just not enough time for us to dig into the issues and, and thoroughly comment on it. And the BC wildlife federation jumped on it back in August. They went through it 70 something page document. And they're like, here are the four things that are fundamentally wrong with how the province is proposing to manage grizzly bears, regardless of hunting these four things, bang, here's our position statement, deal with it. But all the other groups are lobbying and successfully lobbying government to push this date out because I feel they're trying to pull the rug out from underneath of this upswelling of the pro-hunting voice that's getting louder and louder um, through this whole commenting period. And so they want to keep pushing the date out, hopefully hoping that either the government will 
revisit the plan and have some sort of a formal statement saying we will never allow grizzly bear hunting in the province again and put that in the management plan or they're trying to push it out hope hopefully thinking that we'll eventually just get tired and and go away with the pro hunting voice so i'm i'm actually kind of like quite po'd about this and 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 if this is the truth of why these dates are getting pushed out um that really really annoys me and i'm i'm almost at the point where i'm just kind of fed up with just saying to people like hey go read the plan here's the talking points go in enter comments and i'd love to develop an action campaign with you and just get people all over the world bombarding the government and our elected officials and just say enough is enough rescind this plan and reissue it with a formal statement and a plan to move forward to opening the grizzly bear hunt in the spring of 2024 and do away with the rest of this pushing the date out thing like i'm just kind of tired with the <laughs> the kind of like the the you know the i don't know what you want to call it like the nice approach to commenting on the plan and just um make it political and and like sure. if the Andy groups want to push back against us and they're getting traction and the government pushing this date out, then I'm like, I want to be there like blow for blow and just say, fine, then let's get people skipping the management plan and the bureaucrats and the biologists that are, that are going to have to amend it and go political with it as well. Enter Tom Seawit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that I, might I be that... one of, that might be one of the things like, yeah. you know, Hey, elected officials, I'm uh, what, and oh, by the way, why don't you listen to this podcast? This yeah. Well, so. it seemed to have made an impact. And you said elected officials are, are reaching out because of that. Um, I added that podcast to the, the current action we have on this now, which is basically just linking you to the comment section. Um, and there's talking points included in there as, as well, but uh, it does go over the, the key elements that are missing from the plan. There's seven of them that we have listed. Yeah. And um, so today is October 10th. That is now comment period is open till October 31st for those of you listening. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll work on an action that goes directly to the elected officials. The only thing about that is I I don't want them sway them. If they're going to put a bunch of weight on this comment section, I don't want to sway people away from that also. But see, that's what, that's what the other anti-hunting organizations have been doing. It's, it's like, cause I've been following all their campaigns and they're like, they're Go comment on the plan. Here's our guidance document on what we want you to say. Uh, included in that are very specific things. Like they want it embedded. They're telling people to comment saying embedded into the management plan that hunting is a threat to grizzly bears yeah. that needs to be explicit so and not have a hunt return like they're getting people to say that as their comments then on top of that they're saying please join this letter writing campaign to the elected officials to say don't bring the hunt back so they're fighting this on the dual front because they're seeing us getting a pro hunting voice, making comments on the grizzly bear management plan. It's not a yes or no, bring the hunt thing back. It's about 
the future of grizzly bear conservation and management in the province. But there's enough little things in there where a pro hunting voice needs to be heard, which is what I've been advocating for through the work that we've been doing with you. But now I'm almost like, like then fine. If that's where you're taking, you know, this arm wrestling match political, then let's do it as well. We'll do the same thing. Yeah. Because right now, all that the elected officials are hearing in British Columbia is from the don't bring the hunt back. Some organization just went out and did another public opinion survey or whatever. And, oh, look at all the British Columbians that still don't want trophy hunting of grizzly bears back. Oh, by the way, they also don't like the hunting of black bears, wolves, and cougars for trophies either, right? And I'm going, oh, for God's sake, right? That's all the elected officials are hearing. That's the only voice they're hearing right now, other than... BC Wildlife Federation, Wild Sheep Society, BC have written formal statements to the minister as well as is encouraging the members in the public to go comment on the draft plan. But I'd like to take the bigger fight directly to the elected officials so that we're not, you know, um, getting washed out with a hundred voices to every one that writes, writes an elected official over, over yeah. it. So. All right. Well, let's expand that. Okay. How that works. Um, did you, I don't even, you said something about, <laughs> I almost thought you said kids in the hall <laughs> earlier <laughs> and it, it, you were talking about something in the hall, but that's your last name. You're, I think you're talking about your grandpa or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It made me think, yeah. I was saying, I was, I think earlier I was saying my family said, oh, this Mark is going to be the first kid in the hall family. Yeah. That, in the hall. that isn't going to be a hunter. Yeah, that's what it was. I don't know <laughs> if kids in the hall made it. I grew up in Michigan, like <laughs> 20 minutes from Canada. So I watched it all the time. But uh, did you watch that? I just wrote it down. I wanted to ask you, was that something you loved? Kids in the hall? No, because hey. it was like, I, I kind of booked out of television yeah. kind of as a teen. I yeah. just was like, just doing too much stuff. And yeah. You know, my wife and I, we raised our, our kids in a home with no television set. Hmm. So well, good for you, we, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I'm 56 years old, be 57 in a couple months or whatever. And I would probably say since, uh, definitely since 17, 18, I just been away from television. So a lot really? of that stuff would have been, yeah, been in that era. Yeah. Well, I watched it. A lot. <laughs> I don't know if 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 it aired in other states or down here. I have no idea. But when you said that, I for a second I thought you said kids in the hall, and you weren't saying that. You said kid in the hall. Yeah. No, anyway, it's funny. Yeah, it was funny growing up. I, I it made me laugh. I listened to a lot of Canadian radio, a lot of Montreal, and and uh, and Windsor. SCTV. Yeah, all that Canada's Canada's uh, version and uh, precursor to Saturday Night Live, and and uh, yeah, guys like Rick Moranis and um, oh, yeah. you know all those guys that you know John Candy and everything, all Canadians. Um, yeah. Bill right. Murray, you know, are all go trace back to um, you know SCTV that eventually went to Saturday Night Live and on from there. So I like that cool. guy. I, I, uh, I it's good. It was just good old fashioned. Yeah. Stuff that would have, that would offend a lot of people nowadays. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I probably don't even realize it, 
how offensive it would be now. I just haven't watched it in so long, but I'm sure it would no. be. No, man. Go watch a couple episodes of uh, Archie Bunker. Oh, yeah. No, I, I do know. <laughs> I do know about that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that would never That air. was offensive in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But everyone could handle it. Um. Well, Mark, this has been a great podcast that I didn't know I was going to have. I wasn't sure who was going to have the podcast, but either way, it's been great. No, I'm happy you have it. I, I like well, like I to will... see you're doing amazing work. I, I I would say as this year has gone on, you are exponentially growing and and what you're putting out there and the people behind you and the voice you're having, um, the impact you're having, like you're just rocking and I'm gosh, just in the last couple of weeks, that whole thing of people writing in going like, hi, my name is, I'm a hunter. And it's just like, that is just amazing. And it's like, yeah, that needs to get into Chatelaine magazine and billboards yeah. in LA and stuff like that. Right. Like you're just, you're doing amazing work. Love working uh, with you. Finding the space. We're finding the space that we work in and where it's going to be successful. And our next, like our, our general public education campaign is going, that's what I'm most excited about. That's the big, big thing that I'm working on now. And uh, with an actual team of people, which I'm super excited about. And uh, that's what I'm most looking forward to. Cause I think that's where we're going to have the largest, that's where the battles won and lost is with the general public. We so, have to get out of our own echo chamber. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. All these little things I'm doing with the, the trophy hunting profiles and all that, that's all actually pointed towards this other campaign. Nice. Uh, that I'm trying to get built. So I'm super, super excited about that. Yeah, this year's been good. We have a lot of people getting on board and a lot more. Um, we've had a lot of fantastic meetings. And uh, I think we're going to, you're going to see more of us, 100%. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I look look forward to helping you in yeah. any way, shape, or form that I can. And I love the support that you're giving us for issues here in Canada. So I love working with you. I love talking with you. You always know the issues and that's so important, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it really, uh, it's, it's people like you and, and a few others who information is important, you know, and good information is important and people who can break down the issues like you can is insanely important. Um, that's when I, when I heard about, you know, when you kind of partnered with blood urges, I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. You, you know, excellent, excellent idea. So anyway, thank you for coming on and thank you. Uh, I'll get this up soon and we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Look forward to the next one. <laughs>